Let's begin with a prayer in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus, divine mercy, we thank you for your presence here, because we are gathered in your name, and you said that when two or three gather in your name, there you are in their midst in a special way. And so we make that act of faith right here, right now, that you are with us, that you are very attentive to us. And that you are the good shepherd. And you said that we can hear your voice. So we trust that you are going to be speaking to our hearts. Not just during this talk, but all day, all weekend. You want to affirm us in our true identity as sons and daughters of the Father. As brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, come. Come and speak to us. Speak to our hearts. Enlighten our minds. Bring your peace. Bring your, the mercy of God in a new way. Help us to have this encounter with divine mercy, with the Good Shepherd, with the love of the Father. Mother Mary, we crown you the queen of this reflection, of this meditation, as we pray together. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, session three in your books. The way we are, historical man. So speaking of historical man, I want to give you all a little bit of history. I was doing the math, and it was 29 years ago this month when I had a pretty big conversion. How many of you are sophomores right now? A few of you, okay. So it was my sophomore year. 29 years ago, 1993, I know that seems like ancient history, right? When I had a a pretty big conversion in college, it's when I first felt called to the priesthood, Father Chuck. Even though I grew up Catholic, never went to a Catholic school, interestingly enough. Sometimes people are like, really? Wow, you never went to a Catholic school? No, never went to Catholic school growing up. The college I was at was not a Catholic college. But I was still going to Mass every weekend. Uh, there was a nearby church just, just off of campus, so I would typically walk there on Sunday morning and go to church, go to Mass. But it was Ash Wednesday, 1993, and I can still remember the day, believe it or not. I don't know if I can remember what happened last year on Ash Wednesday, but I can remember what happened on Ash Wednesday, 1993. I went to Mass that afternoon with some friends. We all piled into this small car. I remember that. It wasn't mine. And we drove to this church, got our ashes, did the Catholic thing, came back to campus, went to dinner. And then after dinner, I went to Jen's room. Jen was a girl in my class who also wanted to be a teacher because that's what I was going to school for. I was a biology major, but I was also getting my certification to teach high school biology and to coach. I, I was playing small college football. I wanted to coach as well. That was really my passion. And so this young lady, Jen, was also wanting to be a teacher. And she worked at the library, and so whenever I went to the library, we would strike up conversation. And so anyway, I was inspired to go and visit Jen this particular evening. And as I got to her door, she was on her way out going to Mass. And I said, well, believe it or not, I went to Mass earlier today. And I asked her if she wouldn't mind if I just waited for her in her dorm room. And she's like, yeah, that's fine. And she didn't have a roommate, so I was there by myself. I sit down at her desk, I start opening my books, but then the Holy Spirit led my eyes around her room and I noticed that she had a copy of the Catechism of the Catholic Church on her bookshelf. And it wasn't the newer one that we have that you have all probably seen because you've grown up with it for the most part. 
But this was written by a, a, a Jesuit priest, Father John Hardin, who was very popular in the Midwest. He, he traveled around preaching, and, and he wrote a lot of books, and he wrote this catechism. And it just so happened that I used it for my high school confirmation class. I was confirmed as a junior in high school, and we had a very good pastor who made sure that we were getting good stuff, and so we were using this catechism written by Father John Hardin. Anyway, I was so surprised to see it on her bookshelf. So I took it off her bookshelf, as I was inspired to do, and I just started paging through it. And the Holy Spirit really spoke to me in that moment. I, I like to call it my first God moment as a young adult. And as I was paging through the catechism, I said to myself, this is my faith, I believe it, it's important to me, but I know I'm not living it as well as I should be or could be. So maybe this friendship with, with Jen will help me grow in my faith. Maybe this will inspire me to be a better Catholic, a better Christian. And then, like I said, my eyes went around her room and I noticed she had a rosary around her bedpost. She had a crucifix above the door. She had a, a, an old issue of Catholic Digest on her nightstand. And I'm thinking, my Lord, she's really Catholic. Like over the top. But nevertheless, she inspired me. She inspired me. And she was a rather petite thing. She was like barely five feet tall. And I say this because I was playing football and, you know, I was trying to be big and strong. And, you know, I played defense. So I like to brag that the offensive linemen had a hard time moving me, right? But this rather petite young lady, she moved me. She moved me because of her faith. She didn't even know it. She wasn't even there in the room. And she was having this profound influence on me. So I put the catechism back, and she came back. And I, I asked her a few questions about her faith. But on my own, I made a little resolution. Because it's Ash Wednesday. I'm supposed to do something, right? I'm supposed to give up something or do something. So I said to myself, all right, for my Lenten resolution, I'm going to pray every day. I don't know what that's going to look like exactly, but I will pray every day during Lent. So I like to joke that God is like the divine sniper. I don't know if you, anybody saw American Sniper, the movie. You know, aim small, miss small, right? That was his motto. And I think God's the same way sometimes, you know? I was giving God an opportunity. I started praying every day during Lent, and I can assure you it wasn't much. It was probably like an Our Father, a Hail Mary, and a Glory Be on the way to breakfast in the morning, and probably something like that before I went to bed. So it wasn't much. Less than five minutes a day. But the Lord was taking advantage of that. He was speaking to my heart. And I remember going to our, I think they called it the career center or something like that at college, you know, where you want to start thinking about where you're going to work. And I looked up Catholic high schools in Wisconsin because I was from Wisconsin. I grew up in Milwaukee. This small school was about 80 miles north of Milwaukee. So I was interested. Where are all the Catholic high schools in Wisconsin? You know, because, ah, you know, if I'm a football coach and a teacher, wouldn't it be nice to at least be able to talk about my faith with my students and athletes? Okay, so that's how the Holy Spirit was working on me, little by little. And then this day, I don't remember exactly. Um, Ash Wednesday was February 22nd. I looked it up again this morning just to confirm that. So this was two or three weeks later. I usually chalk it up to St. Joseph, which is March 19th. It may not have been that late, but I just like to give him credit for, for praying for me. And so I was in my dorm room this time by myself, thinking about my plans to teach and coach and get married and have a family. And then all of a sudden I thought, well, if I were a priest, then it would be my duty to teach the truth and help kids all the time. Well, maybe I should be a priest. I was like, who said that? You know, <laughs> Where did that come from? Because I'd never thought of it, ever. And I was an altar boy. As I said, I didn't go to Catholic school, but I was an altar boy. And I can, well, my mom says, I don't really remember this, but she said that one time, I was probably, she said, yeah, I was in high school. So after serving the Easter Vigil Mass, she asked me, you know, 
Jason, you look so happy up there. You ever think about being a priest? But I was like, no, mom, forget it, you know. Not going to happen. But anyway, it hit me my sophomore year. And I just wanted to share that, not because I'm, I'm here to, uh, you know, like twist your arm, boys to be a priest or anything like that, right? Or girls to be a nun or anything like that, right? It's, it, but what I do want to emphasize is that I really didn't realize that God had a plan for me that never really occurred to me growing up as a Catholic Christian, that God had a very specific plan for my life. And I had never really thought about that. That hadn't dawned on me. I never really prayed about that before. So that's why I share it. Because the fact that you're all on a retreat like this is, is pretty big deal. Like, God's pretty excited about this. You know? you're, and he's going to honor this. The fact that you're basically taking a whole weekend off to give God a chance to, to encounter you, to bless you, to speak to your hearts, like, that gets God pretty excited. And I'm sure you're all excited about it too, otherwise you wouldn't be here. At least to some degree, you're happy to be here and you're wanting to be here. It's an optional retreat. So, like, God doesn't have to be a sniper here, right? This is like just, hey, like a shotgun, like, you know, whatever, a water balloon, right? Like, <laughs> you're here, you're very open to hearing from him. So you're giving him, like, all day. So this is, this is pretty good stuff. So he's going to be speaking to you gently, personally, in a way that's going to resonate with you. And I touched on some of those ways really briefly last night, but let me just remind you here that, you know, God's going to speak through his word to you. We've got scripture passages here. You might have your Bibles with you. So absolutely going to speak to you through his word, through these notes, many of which are taken from the catechism and, and Pope St. John Paul II. And as I share with you, as Mary Beth shares with you today, the Holy Spirit can use that to inspire you, to speak to your heart. The Lord is just going to use your own thoughts, too, to speak to you. His voice sounds like your thoughts. And as I said last night, too, maybe through your imagination, if, if you're particularly imaginative, even if you're not, he can still use your imagination. So give God permission to use your imagination, to give you a vision, or maybe to call to mind a time in your life when he did make his presence felt to you in a particular way. And that doesn't even have to be a church moment. Maybe it was, you know, at the golf or the ocean or the mountains or in your room or in your car. For me, Mary Beth has heard me say this so many times, but honestly, God really speaks to me when I'm in my car by myself driving around. And I can't tell you how many times between my house and, and the school where I have an office in, in Michigan, it's just a 20-minute drive, but how many times in those 20 minutes God has spoken very loudly and clearly to me in the car. And what is it about the car? Well, you kind of know. Your, your whole mind, body, spirit just knows that you're by yourself, you're alone, so it's safe. And so if you just get hit with this wave of the spirit and if you're moved like I've been to tears nobody's going to see me right so sometimes when you're in an environment like this we tend to have our, 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 our guards our guard up right and that's just natural so what I would say to you is if you don't feel something really powerful today or this weekend don't worry it's okay. That doesn't mean that you're not doing it right or something's wrong. But like I said, maybe it'll, it'll happen the next time you're by yourself. And if you get a chance to, to be by yourself today, that's great. If you can go for a little walk or just find a quiet corner. But again, it may not happen until you're in your car by yourself or you're back at campus and, and you can just get away from everybody somehow, some way. For a few minutes and 
and God might really act then and there. So it's as if we're, we're making a big deposit, if you will, into the bank of grace this weekend. And I like to say there are usually residual graces that will continue to, to bear fruit, to, you know, to pay dividends, if you will, throughout the upcoming days and weeks and months. So let's just trust in that too. Not to worry about what you get or don't get this weekend, but just to know that, hey, God is going to honor this in a big way. So we want to talk a little bit about historical man. And Mary Beth was talking about original man, how we were before the fall. And that's important to appreciate that, God's original plan for us. But we also have to be realistic. We have to face the fact that our first parents did fall and we still suffer the consequences of that original fall. So let's just read this number from the catechism right at right at the top there, describing the fall. The harmony in which they had found themselves, thanks to original justice, is now destroyed. The control of the soul's spiritual faculties over the body is shattered. The union of man and woman becomes subject to tensions, their relations henceforth marked by lust and domination. Harmony with creation is broken. Visible creation has become alien and hostile to man. Because of man, creation is now subject to its bondage to decay. Finally, the consequence explicitly foretold for this disobedience will come true. Man will return to the ground, for out of it he was taken. Death makes its entrance into human history. So death was never a part of God's original plan. We just have to know that. That was not a part of God's original plan. The pain and suffering that we all experience was not a part of God's original plan. That all happened because of sin. So that begs the question, right? Well, well why did God allow for that then? Well, because we were made in his image and likeness, as, as you've been hearing, which means that we were free. He had to create us with this freedom because without freedom, you can't love. Think about that. Without freedom, you can't really love. So love is a necessary condition. I'm sorry, freedom is a necessary condition for love. Freedom is a necessary condition for genuine love. And that's why God created us with, with freedom, so that we could have a loving relationship with him, so that we could freely return, receive his love and return it. God doesn't want slaves. He doesn't want servants. He doesn't want robots. He doesn't want mere animals who just act out of instinct. He wants sons and daughters. He wants brothers and sisters who are free to engage him in a loving relationship. So I highlight here that it's kind of uh, not so clear in that opening paragraph, but essentially four relationships, as I mentioned there in that next bullet point, were broken because of original sin. So our relationship with God our relationship with each other, the relationship with ourselves, and yes, our relationship with nature. So all of them were affected because of original sin. So even natural disasters here in Florida, you got hurricanes. Up north, we got tornadoes and we got blizzards. And out west, they got earthquakes. Or, you know, So all of these natural disasters that we now have to live with, even that is fruit of the fall. Mosquitoes, <laughs> fruit of the fall, right? So, 
The next bullet point here. Original sin caused a deprivation of original holiness and justice, but human nature has not been totally corrupted. It is wounded and inclined to sin, an inclination to evil that is called concupiscence. So maybe that's a new word for you. I don't know. Concupiscence describes this fallen nature of ours, this brokenness that we all experience, this disharmony, an inclination to evil that is called... Okay, baptism by imparting the life of Christ's grace erases original sin and turns a man back toward God, but the consequence for our nature, weakened and inclined to evil, persists in man and summon him to spiritual battle. Yeah. It's true, right? And we all feel that. We feel the tension. I like to say, you know, every morning when our alarm goes off and we are, you know, wanting to just reach for that snooze button, that's concupiscence at work. So we have to develop, with the help of God's grace, virtues, which are good habits. Good habits that allow us to relate to God and to one, to one another and to ourselves with greater harmony, greater peace, greater respect. So that is possible. That is possible. However, I think our image of God, as we've been saying, is so important to help us in that, that God is on our side. God is not at arm's length saying to you, okay, let's see how you do now. It's not that he just gives us all of these commandments and says, okay, good luck. Let's see how you do. I'll be, I'll be watching you now. You can be sure of that. That's not God. However, be, how is it that Adam and Eve even fell in the first place? Well, it's because the devil did tempt them to doubt God's goodness. to doubt his good plans and his heart, his love for them. And so they felt like they had to grasp. You know, the story we tell is that they reached for the fruit that they were forbidden to eat. It doesn't even say apple specifically, but anyway. Right, that they reached and they grasped for themselves because the devil was saying, well... God knows that you will be like God. As if God was not going to share himself with Adam and Eve completely. As if God was going to hold something back. As if God really didn't want them to be happy. So that was the lie. Jesus called the devil the father of lies. And when he speaks lies to us he is speaking according to his nature he is a liar and that is one of the biggest lies out there that god doesn't want us to be happy that he doesn't really care about us that he's not interested in our happiness so i list a few of the the lies there. Lies from original sin. God is not your father. God doesn't love you. God is not a gift. So the truth is, God is our father like no other. God loves us like nobody can, and he is a gift. God is love, which means he is, by his very nature, giving himself to us and inviting us into his communion. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God is not solitary. God is not alone. God is a communion of persons. And he created us to have us share in that communion. That's our destiny. That's our purpose. So I have a few more notes there on concupiscence. If those help you to reflect on this further, great. I'm going to jump down there to that second discovery of sex differs radically from the first. Rather than finding themselves united in their masculinity and femininity, 
Sexual difference now divides them and sets them against each other. Their original ability to share themselves has been shattered. Again, not completely. Not completely. So we shouldn't feel like this is hopeless to have good relationships between man and woman. That's not true. But it is, it's not easy. It doesn't come without a struggle. To the woman, God said, in pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall dominate you. The whole of human history has been marked by various forms of male domination. Woman's special genius, her receptivity to the gift, is now seen as a burden or even a curse. Throughout history, all that is feminine will experience a particular prejudice or even hatred. And that breaks God's heart. John Paul II was really a champion of women. He even wrote all kinds of documents, one in particular, highlighting the the genius of femininity. Because on some level, all of us, men and women, are called to receive the gift of God. We are all, the church, the bride of Christ. That's hard for guys to get excited about. I realize that. It's easier for girls to relate to being a bride, obviously. But the fact is, we are all members of the church, which is also seen and conceived of as the bride of Christ, which means we necessarily are receptive to the gift of God. So it's not a weakness. It's not a weakness to be receptive, to be feminine is not a weakness. We all have to get in touch with the feminine genius. We all have to be open to receiving because we have to be humble. We all have to be humble and recognize we're all desperately in need of God. We're all now in need of redemption, of salvation, of of healing, of forgiveness. We all need God to put us back together, in a sense, and to bring us together. We all sense this estrangement from God and from one another and even from ourselves because of sin. That's the world we live in. But it's not the end of the story either. We'll talk more about that later. But it helps to get in touch with the struggle. But not in a despairing way, not in a hopeless way either. But rather, we look to Jesus now. We look to Jesus' divine mercy as the answer. Pope John Paul II would say, Jesus Christ is the answer to the question that is every human life. Why am I here? Where did I come from? Where am I going? Theology of the body, we said, answers these questions. Ultimately, the answer always points back to Jesus. Because he himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the way to the Father. I'm the truth about who you are and about who God is. I'm revealing that. I'm fully revealing that to you. I became a man to fully reveal to you the Father and the Father's love, but also I've come to reveal to you, human beings, what it means to be human. And that's, again, what theology of the body is all about. Not just about sex and marriage, but what it means to be human. A child of God. Coming from God, destined to live with him forever. But while on earth, invited to friendship with him. To relationship with him. That he initiates. He, I like to say, God is the protagonist. God is the protagonist. He's the one who acts first. He takes the initiative. 
He took the initiative to create you. And he takes the initiative to save you, to redeem you. He takes the initiative to call you. He took the initiative to call you all together here this weekend. And by the grace of God, you all said, yes, I'd I'd like to go on retreat. So whenever we say yes to God, we're opening our, we're responding in faith. You may not have thought of it that way, but you all responded in faith, which is the proper response. The catechism talks about this. What is our proper response to God's revelation? Faith. Faith. God revealing himself, again, through his word, through his sacraments, through his church, through his body, the the church, you know, one another. What's our response? Faith. What was my response 29 years ago? Well, my initial response was, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man, you know? You want me to be a priest? Really? And the decor in my dorm room would not have led anybody to believe that I was thinking about being a priest, right? (laughs) Many of my CDs would not have, you know, I can tell you I didn't have any praise and worship CDs back in the day. That's for sure. And even as I was going off to seminary and giving away some of my music, I'd look at some of it and I'd be like, eh, I don't know if anybody should listen to this. I'd just throw it out. There weren't too many of those, but some of them I just threw out. That doesn't mean that secular music can't be baptized. You know, I like to joke that, that well, so the first people I told were my parents. So I, thankfully, I had a, a good relationship with my parents. And so before I told any of my friends at college that I was thinking about being a priest, and I didn't tell Jen right away, I'm like, I better keep my options open just in case, you know. So I drove home on a Saturday night. And what came up but uh, Guns N' Roses' Patience. Do you know the song, right? All right. So God even spoke to me through Axl Rose. <laughs> Just like, be patient, Jason. It's going to be okay. Just, yeah, you know, one step at a time. Like, you don't have to have all the answers tonight. Like, are my parents going to drill me? Like, whoa. No, and they didn't. You know, they were great. They were very supportive. So, God can speak to us in so many ways. All right, let's, let's keep moving. Christ appeals to the human heart. Let's turn the page. This is, uh, that top quote there is from Matthew's Gospel. It's Jesus at the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard... That it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Christ's words demand, so to speak, that man enters into his full image. Man must rediscover the lost fullness of of his humanity and want to regain it. We all know it is possible to follow rules without ever attaining holiness. It is called legalism or moralism. But Christ is calling us to so much more than just following the rules. And that's what these notes get into. If you jump down towards the bottom of the page there, you see grace. The law was given that grace might be sought and grace was given that the law might be fulfilled by St. Augustine. And I put there a definition of grace, but very simply, you could say that grace is God's power and presence. So Christianity is a religion of grace. Where God literally communicates to us his power and presence. The sacraments communicate or transmit grace to us. When we were baptized, we received sanctifying grace, it's called. Literally, we became temples of the Holy Spirit. God's presence literally came upon us, entered us. 
And every time we receive the sacraments, every time we pray, we're opening ourselves up to God's grace. We're inviting his presence, his power to fill us. We're looking for more of it. And there's always more. Because <laughs> God is infinite, right? We can never exhaust God's power and presence, his love. Can't exhaust it. So, Jesus comes, and he comes to invite us to really get back in touch, as we just read, with who we were meant to be from the beginning. From the beginning. And God just doesn't just put us back together. I often think of like a coffee mug, for example, your coffee mug, and maybe you, you break your favorite coffee mug, you know, the handle pops off, or maybe it breaks into a few big pieces, and you try to super glue it back together, maybe. It's not that God just super glues us back together <laughs> by grace, but grace actually transforms us. It, it elevates us. It perfects us, if you will. That's what St. Thomas Aquinas would say, that Grace builds on our nature. It builds on it, but then it, it elevates it. It perfects it. It sanctifies it. It glorifies it. Ooh, right? So the more grace that we dispose ourselves to receive, the more we enter into God's presence, the more we read his word, right? We're transformed by that. And we're actually then becoming, we're actually becoming what he wanted us to be from the beginning. We actually become more ourselves. We become more human. And, you know, we've all, you know, done things that we regret for sure. And you're like, yeah, that... That, that wasn't me. I wasn't acting like myself. That's why the church says you shouldn't get drunk, right? I'm not here to shame anybody for having gotten drunk, you know? You know, I was a freshman in college too, right? So, right? But when, when you get, I mean, I'm talking about when you really get drunk, not just a buzz, right? But when you get drunk, you actually lose the faculty to reason, you lose the faculty, your human faculty, to reason. So now you're becoming like an animal, literally. That's why the church says you shouldn't get drunk, right? Because then when you're in that state, we make a lot of bad decisions, amen? <laughs> when we get drunk, we make a lot of bad decisions. It's just what happens, right? And you literally don't have control over what you're doing when you're drunk, So that's why you shouldn't get drunk, right? But if you want to get intoxicated with the Holy Spirit, go for it, right? <laughs> and we pray that that happens, right? Isn't that what happened on Pentecost morning? Peter had to stand up and say, we have not had too much to drink. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. But whatever they were doing, it made people think that they were drunk, so they were acting very openly and freely and jubilantly. I guess they weren't angry drunks, thanks be to God, right? <laughs> they were joyful drunks in that sense. Because people were like, what have you guys been drinking? It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. What are you doing? They were literally intoxicated with the Holy Spirit. They were filled with the Spirit. They were so happy. And they were speaking different languages, or at least people were hearing them speak in different languages. But then they too had to keep growing. I mean, that, they weren't done. The apostles weren't done on Pentecost Sunday. There was more. In fact, if you read just a couple chapters later in Acts 4, because Pentecost happens in Acts 1 and 2, but Acts 4 there's already been some persecution in chapter 3. And, and they gathered together again in prayer, and they asked for more. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And the place where they were shook. 
Does that mean they weren't filled up two chapters ago? No. It just means that there was more. There was more to receive. There was more growth. Because the bar for their ministry was getting raised. There was now persecution. So I don't don't want to digress here, but the point being, we don't arrive. Just because I'm ordained a priest doesn't mean that I've arrived and I'm done now and I've become all that God has made me to be. No. The day I was ordained was just the beginning of sorts. Of a new stage in my walk with Jesus. Just the beginning. You're on this retreat. It's, it's a new chapter, you could say, in your walk with Jesus. I'm sure like God is writing a, a new chapter for you this weekend. And as you respond in faith, God continues to write. And you continue to grow. Love is dynamic. Right? Do you ever think about that? Love is dynamic. And the, the word for power in Greek is where we get our word dynamite in English. Dunamis. Dun- and that's where we get dy- dynamic has the same root. Dynamic, dynamite comes from the Greek word for power. So love is powerful. Love is dynamic. It's not static. Love changes us, right? Whenever you are loved, whenever you are the recipient of genuine love, you're transformed, right? You grow. And when you love others, they grow. So God is always wanting us to grow. Some people wonder, like, what's going to happen in heaven? Is it just boring? We all just kind of sit around and sit on a cloud all day with a harp or something? No. no, that is not heaven. We'll talk more about heaven tomorrow. But even in heaven, there's growth. There's, there's dynamic interactions with God and with one another. We're being transformed. So we need that, though, right? Like, God just doesn't give the command. He doesn't just give the rule and say, good luck. No. Jesus came to give us this grace, his power and his presence. Let's look at the top of the next page. True redemption of our bodies and eros. I just want to highlight here. If we are to understand the proper sense of Christ's words, we must contend with the deep-seated habits which spring from Manichaeism in our way of thinking and evaluating things. So Manichaeism was a heresy that basically said, uh, body bad, spirit good. Body bad, spirit good. So this dualistic heresy arose in the third century and has managed to infiltrate the thinking of numerous Christians to a greater or lesser degree ever since. But we can even think that when, you know, when, we, when we fall into sin, when we commit sin, we can chastise ourselves and our own desires, especially around sexuality. Or when people take advantage of us or use us or abuse us and our bodies, we can think, ugh, this body of mine. I just want, I want, to, I want to get out of it. I want to leave it. I want to crawl out of it. But your body is not bad. Our bodies are not bad. Our desires are not bad. But even those need to be redeemed. If you look down, uh, it's about a little more than halfway down the page there, it says, this is what is at stake. The reality of Christ's redemption. Christ has redeemed us. This means he has given us the possibility of realizing the entire truth of our being. He has set our freedom free from the domination of concupiscence. And if redeemed man still sins, this is not due to an imperfection of Christ's redemptive act, but to man's 
will not to avail himself of the grace which flows from that act. God's command is, of course, proportioned to man's capabilities, but to the capabilities of the man to whom the Holy Spirit has been given. John Paul II wrote that. Next bullet point, we're going to tie this together. Eros, at its deepest level, is that inner power that attracts man to the true, the good, and the beautiful. I think, bless you. So Mary Beth, you were talking about Eros, right? So Eros is related to this, this redemption, this desire that we all have for the true, the good, and the beautiful, this desire that we have for communion with one another and with God, the desire that we have for love. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's a divine thing. God God made it. God made it. But it's true, it's not easy to control. It's really impossible without the grace of God. Without the grace of God. But we shouldn't doubt that it can be redeemed and transformed and and that it can be truly life-giving. In, in the fullest sense, in the greatest sense. Next bullet point there. In the erotic sphere, eros and ethos are not opposed to each other. Instead, eros and ethos are called to meet in the human heart and to bear fruit in this meeting. So ethos would be the, the moral aspect. The moral code, if you will. And then eros is the, the desire that we've been talking about. They're not mutually opposed to each other. They're meant to converge and to help us grow and become all that God created us to be. Because ultimately, that desire that we have is for God. God is the ultimate fulfillment of that eros. The the truest good the greatest good, you could say, the truest truth, the most beautiful thing, that's God. So ultimately, that eros leads us to God. There's a hole in our hearts that can only be filled by God. Turn the page. At the top there, this is from Pope Benedict. Love promises infinity, eternity, a reality far greater and totally other than our everyday existence. Yet we have also seen that the way to attain this goal is not simply by submitting to instinct. Purification, or as I put in in parentheses there, decontamination and growth and maturity are called for. And these also pass through the path of renunciation. But far from rejecting or poisoning Eros, they heal it and restore its true grandeur. It's true grand. That's a great word, right? Grandeur. Wow. Yeah. The glory of God, the grandeur of God and his plans for us. And really our dignity. I think it was St. Leo the Great who said, you know, Christian, know your dignity. John Paul II, whenever you would have these World Youth Day. Any, anybody been to a World Youth Day with Pope Francis? Or, yeah? Awesome. Or Pope Benedict, maybe. But Pope Francis, yeah. I went to World Youth Day, again, <laughs> dating myself, 1993. Father Chuck, did you ever go to one? Uh, Madrid. Hey, you went to Madrid, all right. I mean, just unbelievable, right? So I was, I was 20 that summer of 1993. It was in Denver. It was in the Rockies. Cherry Creek State Park. And just seeing the Pope come in, hundreds of thousands of young people. For the closing mass, there were three quarters of a million people, they say, gathered in this state park. It was like, it was a sea of humanity. And Madrid was probably even more, right? Probably a couple million. But that many young people went out to the Rockies and gathered from around the Denver area. And John Paul II was always wanting to inspire young people. 
Not to be afraid. Do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of the world. Don't be afraid of the devil. Don't be afraid of each other. Jesus Christ is the answer to the question that is every human life. You know, God is with you. That's what he said. God is with you. God is with you here today and every day. So that's why we don't have to be afraid. And we don't have to be afraid of our past. Maybe there are some things that need to be processed and and healed. Absolutely, we all have that stuff. We all have that stuff, some more than others. God knows. But none of that stuff is, is defining us. God doesn't hold that against us in any way. But what he's wanting for us is freedom. Let's just talk about freedom real quick before lunch. About halfway down that page there. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Galatians 5.1. Paul's letter to the Galatians. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand fast, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love be servants of one another. True freedom is liberation, not from the external constraint that calls me to good, but from the internal constraint that hinders my choice of the good. So it's not freedom to do whatever I want. It's freedom from sin and fear and the effects of sin. Freedom from the effects of sin that we all experience, especially death, ultimately. So we don't even have to be afraid of death. As Christians, we don't even have to be afraid of death because we believe that we will walk through that as well and come out the other side. That last bullet point there, The task of purity is not only and not so much abstaining. There is another function of the virtue of purity, another dimension, one could say, that is more positive than negative. The positive dimension of purity opens the way toward an ever more perfect discovery of the dignity of the human body, the human person. Your dignity, your value, your worth, your purpose, the meaning of your life. The meaning of your life. So rich. Okay. We now have time for lunch.